Well, as I mentioned earlier, if you're uh, with us this week and you missed last week, or if this is your first time here, uh, we began a sermon series last week, and if you uh, had seen the video, all of these decorations would make a lot more sense to you. Um, So as I said, go back to our website, uh, check it out so you can be kind of caught up with where we are. I'll try to to fill you in in the gaps as much as I can, Um, but it's kind of a conversation that we began last week, and we began this series by asking several of you um, a couple of questions. Can you grab that real quick? See, like if I see a card out on the aisle, like that's going to be like my only thing that's going to matter to me the whole time, so thank you. Kind of, you know, I don't know whether that's OCD or what that word is, but anal retentive. One of my favorite, this is just way off topic, I'm sorry about this, but I used to be a teacher and I had a, an eighth grade student my, my first year and he was just really a brilliant kid and he, he wore a shirt to school that said, does anal retentive have a hyphen? That should be hilarious to you guys because only an anal retentive person would care if there was a hyphen and they made him take the shirt off because I guess the word anal was in it, but I really think it's because the principal didn't get the joke. So anyways, that's neither here nor there, as they say. But we began last week by asking a couple of questions. We, we, we asked for some of you guys to respond uh, to these questions. And the two questions were, what does it mean to be in the world but not of it? Kind of a, a common Christian phrase we kind of hear thrown around. And the second question is, what is our salvation for? Not what are we saved from, but what is our salvation for? And much of our conversation and the dialogue and the video that we watched kind of focused and centered around um, this whole uh, issue of just our status here on earth. Exactly who are we here? Uh, The apostles Paul and Peter, who both wrote in the New Testament, described uh, Christians as people whose citizenship is actually in heaven. That, that that's really our home. Um, but, but in the meantime, we're here, and, and, and they dis, de, described us as being foreigners and exiles here on earth. And so the question I posed was this, is, is how do we live in that in-between time? Knowing that, you know, eventually we're going to be there in our permanent home with God in heaven, but what do we do in the here and now in this place that's our temporary home? In a way that, so that when we wake up each day, that we accurately reflect Christ in everything that we do. And the video looked at three ways that, that Christians typically engage with culture. And, and, and it said that there was three ways. One is fortification, the second is domination, and the third is accommodation. Or if you want to think of some easier terms, it might be um, hide, fight, or blend in. Hide, fight, or blend in is is how we typically respond to culture as Christians. And uh, one of these might describe kind of your current mindset. First, we're going to talk about fortification, and it was described as a bunker mentality. And so the idea behind that is is that the world is evil, and so to make sure that, that the evil world doesn't contaminate our perceived goodness then we have to separate ourselves from the world and we have to erect these walls to keep us from from being pulled down um, by the outside world. And so those folks create this Christian bubble wherever they go and they only hang out with Christian people and only listen to Caleb and only go to G-rated movies or stay in church as much as possible so they can focus on the right things. And in extreme cases, these fortifiers just pack up the whole family and they they move out in some commune at the end of a gravel road somewhere right 
to this kind of oasis, this safe harbor from the world and maybe stockpile some ammunition too, just in case, right? We've heard stories like that. Fortification is not at all what Jesus had in mind for us. And we see it in the way that he prayed for the people that he really cared about. Um, And so he's in the garden. Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 17, page 754. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was betrayed and arrested. And starting in verse 6 there, he's praying for his disciples. And I want you to look down to verse 13. This is what he was praying for them. He's talking to the Father. He says, God, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, For they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them, which means make them like Christ. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus says, They and we are not of the world, but they are sent into the world. So we are commissioned to go with Jesus into the world where he is wanting to to rescue and redeem um, his lost children, okay? A lot of us have been uh, to, I wouldn't say a lot, many of us have been to El Salvador in recent years with uh, living water uh, trips, drilling wells. And um, in the 1980s, if you're not aware, there was kind of a civil war there and a lot of bloodshed, and um, it was a tough time in that country. And there was an archbishop at that time named Oscar Romero, and um, he was shortly assassinated right after he made this quote. If you can put that up. He said, I'm going to speak to you simply as a pastor, as one who, together with his people, has been learning the beautiful but harsh truth That the Christian faith does not cut us off from the world, but immerses us in it. The church is not a fortress set apart from the city. The church follows Jesus, who lived, worked, struggled, and died in the midst of the city, surrounded by people. So Jesus, when he came, he didn't live on the castle up on the hill. Okay? And, And his whole mentality was that his holiness could make other people clean, not the other way around, not we would get contaminated or he would by the sin of the world. And so that's why when he would go and and be encountered with the lepers and and the lame and the the poor and all these people that most of the Jewish uh, religious elite had kind of pushed off and said, the reason why they're that way, in theory, was what they believed was that because they had some sin in their life. So I didn't want to be contaminated by that. So I'm going to put this protective wall, this circle around me, and I'm not going to allow those people to get in there so that my holiness isn't contaminated by them. And Jesus said, you know what? It's just the opposite. I am holiness incarnate, and so I'm going to go into the world 
And I'm not going to be worried about the world contaminating me. I'm going to contaminate the world with my goodness. It's a totally different perspective for us as followers of Christ of how we perceive culture and our role here in the world. So that was fortification. And I think that that's probably the least one that that most of us deal with or have an issue with. And each of these approaches, as I'm going to unveil them to you, I think kind of increase in terms of being more prevalent. So the second is domination or condemning culture. And we see this mindset when we read church billboards that say things like this. I kissed a girl and I liked it, then I went to hell. This is an actual church billboard, okay? So we put these things out there, people who call themselves Christians, and I'm not really sure that people stop their car and they're like, oh yeah, man, I need Jesus, let me turn in here. Right? What time's that service? <clears throat> so this, this, I'll take that down so we don't get too disturbed. Um, so this domination way of looking at condemning culture, this is an issue-driven Christianity instead of a heart-driven Christianity. And so winning the culture wars takes precedence over making disciples and passing the right laws over actually saving souls. And none of it is done out of love. It's all done out of the spirit of this attitude of we're right, you're wrong, and you're going to hell. So the interesting thing is if you look at Jesus and the the culture that he arrived in, he came into Israel at a time when the Roman Empire had conquered his people. They were an oppressed and controlled nation. And during his ministry, you don't ever see him trying to overthrow the Roman government. You don't see him working, you know, behind the scenes to try to pass laws through the political systems of the Romans to benefit his people. You don't see him putting his power and his notoriety, his fame to use to get the right candidates elected, you know, to go and really change things in Rome for the nation of Israel. In fact, when someone asked him if they should pay tax to Rome, he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's right? Give to God what is God's. Jesus understood that um, true and lasting change took place in the hearts of individuals and endured beyond any temporary change in circumstances that worldly systems can bring us. So that's domination. You got fortification, domination. The third perspective and the way that we uh, look at culture is accommodation or just blending in. And so the motto in this group is just, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And I'm sure that all of us have been in, in those places in times where we've just kind of blended in to culture. And so in those cases, we see no discernible difference between the way Christians or non-Christians live their life, spend their time and money, or treat other people. And that's why, if we're honest, the divorce rate in the church and out of the church is about the same. The materialism and the chasing of the American dream is alive and well in the church, even though we read the Bible and God tells us that that is not what's going to bring you satisfaction. A lot of us are on that treadmill. Many Christians, honestly, can be equally or even more so wrapped up into gossip and slander and all kinds of self-centered behaviors that we know are blatantly contrary to the teachings of Christ, but we find it here 
uh, in the church just as often as we do outside the church. And honestly, sometimes I find more morality outside the church than I do inside. I mean, I had a conversation with a guy this week who I don't really know where he's at with God, but he had more integrity in how he handled the situation we were dealing with than I do a lot of time with, with my Christian friends. So it's just interesting. And so maybe you saw yourself in one of those descriptions. Maybe you've been in each one of those camps at different times in your journey. I know I've been following God now for 25 plus years, and I probably have been in each one of those camps at different times. Sometimes I've been hiding from the culture, afraid it was going to contaminate me. Sometimes I've been fighting it. Sometimes I've just been blending in. I've been in all those places. And if you remember in the video, after laying out those three responses to culture, that the main character, Evan, is having a discussion with his friend Stephen in the barn, if you remember that, and where he's, he's making the iron-on t-shirt, not really paying attention. And Stephen says to him, he says, the common thread in all of those responses is a sense of urgency. And this idea that if we don't act now, we're going to end up in some crisis and something awful, irresistible even, is going to happen. So why do you think that is? Why a lot of times is that Christian's response to culture is that, that we've got to do something now, that this, there's a sense of urgency. Where, where does that come from, do you guys think? Okay, what do you mean? Okay. And if we don't do something now, then what? Fear that something bad's going to happen. Okay. Like what? You may not be safe. That's, that's a big one, right? That safety and security comes in creating a world, right, with a lot of weapons, and so we've got to get terrorism, and if we subdue all the you know, jihadists, then we'll, we'll all be okay, and there'll be peace, right? So there's this false illusion of peace and security that, that creates a sense of urgency, okay? What else comes to mind as you think through that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So he's so so he's saying that we don't really know when Christ is coming back. So, um, so there should be somewhat of a sense of urgency in how we live because we don't know how much time we have, right? Okay. So what's the false though sense of urgency like created there like? Okay, yeah, is that the, so the false assumption might be that, that our actions in some way are going to, um, you know, change the course of history in people's lives so that they're better prepared to face Jesus whenever he comes, and we feel sometimes this weight of this responsibility of that, possibly. So, yeah, anything else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's this competition of who's winning the culture war. 
You know, so Fox and CNN are battling it out, right? And, and this, this abortion law in this state didn't get passed. Well, so now we're going to come over here and we're going to fight back. And, you know, we're keeping score and, and we've got to win, you know, or else something is going to happen, right? And I think underlying it all, too, is maybe just a, um, a false security in our own sense of justice as opposed to God's ultimate justice and just being resting in the fact that he's got this. <laughs> he doesn't need us quite as much as we think he might. Okay? So there's probably more there to be unpacked, but that's, that's just this, this sense of urgency. And then if you remember the discussion, Stephen goes on to say that deep-rooted cultural change, he said, takes about a generation. And in biblical terms, he said that was about 70 years. And I thought that was a really long time. Anybody else hear that and was like, wow, 70 years, man, wow, I don't know. So I went and, and uh, I went on the internet and I typed into some Googles and I put in how long does it take for culture to change? And so I read a few articles and, and one article said that, that, that they said in, your, in, a, in the business world with a company that you could change the culture in one to three years. I would say probably depends on the size of the company, how deeply ingrained they are in a lot of different things. But, um, and then they said it would take 20 years to change the culture of a nation. 20 years, okay? And so I know that those numbers are simplistic. There's a lot of factors and variables that go into that. But, but I think what's important for us to understand is that deeply rooted change is probably going to take a lot longer than we think it will and demand much more of us than we want to give. Deeply rooted change is going to take longer than we think it will, and it's going to demand much more of us than we're willing to give. So most of you know as you come in each week and you look at your, your program that our mission statement here is to create a new normal for the next generation. And so our desire as a church is to help your life to change, to become more like Christ, which then hopefully will change also and impact the lives of the people around you, your friends, your children, your family, so on. And that is a hard and long work for all of us because all of us have um, these really messed up views and perspectives that have been kind of ingrained in us from our childhood Messed up ways of looking at the world, messed up ways of viewing God, messed up ways of viewing ourselves and others. And, and, and those, those inaccurate perspectives are ingrained in our hearts and minds probably way more than we think. And it takes a long time to reprogram and begin putting truth in those places and then getting us then to live it out is even just another step beyond that. And that's why Jesus, when, when Jewish religious leaders, these Pharisees, would come to him, and, and maybe the most famous interaction is in John chapter 3 with a guy named Nicodemus, he looks at him and he says, you have to be born again. He says, you're, you're bringing your, this, this old concept of, of how you, who God is and how you relate and connect with him, and I'm bringing you some new information, Okay? And you can't just fit this new information about who God is and what the kingdom of God is like into your old paradigm. You've got to be born again. You've got to start over. You've got to be willing to consider that maybe everything you thought you knew about God might be wrong. 
And, and you need to, and Jesus, so he explained when we become a new creation that he gives us a new heart and a new mind, a fresh start so that we can then understand him from a new perspective in the right way. And, and so that's the process and it's, it's difficult. And you know, <laughs> the true test of whether Wellspring has hit the mark with its mission statement, what that's going to be. It's not going to be when our children, those of us that are sitting here in the room today, when our children, you know, commit their life to the Lord and, and, and choose to follow him. It's going to be when our grandchildren do. That's when we'll know that a new biblical normal has been passed on to the next generation. When our kids leave home and, and they've got the wellspring of, of, of uh, the DNA of wellspring, which hopefully is a biblical DNA, okay, in them, and they take it with them wherever God sends them in the world. So, so when our kids go out and they are looking for their first job and they move to some other town and they've got to go find a church, and when they go looking for a church, they're thinking, man, I want a church that, that hopefully values all people, young and old, vulnerable people, the widows and the orphans, and, and wants to be engaged in the neighborhood around them, and wants to be in vibrant small group communities that talks about real things and is vulnerable and transparent and depends on the word of God and prayer, and that those things are important to them, then we'll know that we're hitting the mark. All those things that our website says that we value. When those are the values of our grandchildren too, then we're getting somewhere. But that long-term approach to culture change is why Evan's friend in the video, Stephen, asked this question. He says, are we willing to do the humble work of sowing and tilling so that another can come along and reap? And what he means is that when we when we begin trying to live in Christ-like ways and planting seeds in people's hearts that we don't always get to see the fruit of that or that it takes longer than we think that it should or than it will and is it still the right work to do? And the problem is, is that we live in a culture, as Brian was saying earlier, that wants things now and as Christians we do too and so we don't stay at churches very long because we, we see another church that comes and they've got you know, bigger bells and whistles and more exciting things and so we're going to go over there and, and check into that and and it's very difficult to see change in our own hearts and, and in community and the lives of others if we don't stick around for a while. And we don't necessarily live in a culture in America anymore that really wants to stick around. So with the time we have left, I want to take a closer look at how Jesus engaged with his culture even more. And so I want you to open your Bibles, just flip them over to John chapter 4. You should be relatively close to there if you kept it open. Page 741, John chapter 4. So in two different interactions we're going to look at, one in John chapter 4, one in John chapter 8, Jesus interacts with a couple of women of ill repute, as Rob Willoughby likes to say. Yes. I'm with you. The first woman is kind of commonly known as the woman at the well, right? She's going to have that on her name tag when we get to heaven. Um, she's been married and divorced several times. The guy that she's living with now is not her husband. And Jesus has this interaction with her. And I want you to just read the story in chapter 4. And uh, I want you to um, think about these questions as you read it just to yourself. Is What does he offer her before he reveals her sin? 
What does he offer her before he reveals his, her sin? And what verse does he reveal her sinful life? Okay, so take a minute, just read it yourself. John 4, starting in verse 1. Okay, so what, what verse does he reveal her sin? What's that? 16, right? What does he offer her before that? Before he even dresses, addresses her sin, what does he offer her? What's that? Eternal life. Yeah. He offers her living water, right? Life. Yeah. So even though Jesus knows all of these things about her going into the conversation, and you know culturally, if you understand the fact that if somebody comes out to get water at noon, it's probably because they're wanting to avoid everyone else because it's hot, and nobody comes out to get water at noon. They go out in the morning when it's cool to go get water and do their chores. So Jesus knows this woman is out there because she doesn't really want to be around anybody else. Okay, the, the society has kind of condemned her because she's kind of broken all the rules. And even though Jesus knows all of this about her, he doesn't begin the conversation with condemnation. He begins it with trying to make a connection to her spiritual thirst, and he offers her living water. He says, if you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. And it's not until the end of their conversation, after that offer of life and grace has been extended to her, that he even brings up the obvious sin that that he, and he knows is there and she knows as well. But make no mistake, he does address the sin, right? So don't overlook that. Flip over to John chapter 8 real quick. Another interaction with a woman caught in adultery. So this time it's, a, it's very short, just those first 11 verses. I want you to read that. And if you're listening at home this week, get your Bible out and read it too. Okay, I want you to read John chapter 8, 1 through 11. 
And tell me what issue Jesus addresses before he deals with the obvious sin of the woman. What issue does he, does he address before he deals with her sin? Okay? So what is it? What issue does he deal with before he deals with, with her sin? The sin of others, right? And a spirit of what? Of judgmentalism, okay? So before he deals with her sin, he, he, he says, hey folks, look at yourself in the mirror, right? And anytime Jesus coached people... <laughs> On how to engage with culture, he says, you've always got to start with the man in the mirror. Okay, listen to what he says in Matthew 7. Just listen to verse 1 through 5. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we have this amazing capacity to point out the sin in others while ignoring the obvious sin in our own life. Okay, That makes it very hard to engage culture in a very winsome way. So our role as Christians in a fallen world surrounded by, by lost and desperate and thirsty people isn't to run from them or to condemn them or just blend in with them and fit in, but it's to build bridges of friendship instead of burning one down or trying to prove how right and holy we are and how wrong and sinful everyone else is. Jesus says, you are not of this world, but I am sending you into this world, okay? And finally, our second question from last week is, what's our salvation for? I want you to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. That's page 545. If that is how we're supposed to interact and engage with culture, go into culture with Jesus engaging them, loving them, offering them life and forgiveness and those things before condemning them and, and putting all the emphasis on their wrongdoing and how right we are, looking at ourselves in the mirror, dealing with our own stuff first. And what is our salvation for? So in the video last week, they talked about this passage in Jeremiah 29. We talked about this is a time when the nation of Israel was, was being sent away to Babylon in, in Iraq, right? Welcome not home, exile. 
and he's addressing God saying, this is how I want you to act when you get there or when you're there. Verse four, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So while you're in exile, a stranger in a strange land, right? Don't hide, fight, or simply blend in. But settle down, live your life, pray for the prosperity, the peace of the city in which God has placed you in. Because if that city prospers, you will prosper as well. And after quoting that verse in the video, Stephen says to Evan, maybe what God asked of the Israelites in captivity, he's asking of us today. And, and he says to him, he compares all of us to John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ, right? If you don't know much about John the Baptist, he was Jesus' cousin, and he came right before Jesus started his ministry, and he went out to people, and crowds would gather around him, and he says, guys, you need to repent of your sin. You need to prepare yourself for this Savior that's coming. You need to have a right heart and a right attitude so when he comes with this new message, you can receive it in a way that's, that's life-giving to you. And so he baptized people and they, they, they made this vow to change their life and to be ready for Christ. And so now we are called to be a people in St. Joseph who prepare the way for the coming of Christ again. And so are we building bridges of friendship that draw people towards Christ or are we burning them down? Are we wetting their appetite for more of him? Are we connecting to their spiritual thirst? Or are we just pushing them away? I want to share with you as we conclude today a really interesting article I came across um, in, a, in a magazine called Christ and Pop Culture. And it was right after, this is the end of January, January 31st of this past year, and it was right after the Grammy Awards show was on, okay? So it says, Sunday's Grammy Awards were about par for the course for our beloved and admittedly messed up pop music culture. Performance and style ruled the day, perhaps at the expense of artistry and talent. A few performers delivered the shock value acts uh, that we've come to expect from award shows, vying to deliver the most attention-grabbing, publicity-worthy performances, including a mass wedding of heterosexual and homosexual marriages. Because if there's one thing pop music loves, it's love, acceptance, and non-judgmentalism. Apparently, though, Christian recording artist Natalie Grant, who was up for Best Gospel Contemporary Christian Music Performance, was surprised by how bad it was. After documenting on Facebook... Her journey to the Grammys, roots painted, check, haircut, check, dress picked, check, now to find the perfect shoes. This is kind of leading up to the Grammys. She continued to play-by-play that evening. Midway through the event on her Facebook page, she posted, we left the Grammys early. I've made thoughts, I have many thoughts about the show tonight, most of which are probably better left inside my head, but I'll say this. I've never been more honored to sing about Jesus and for Jesus, and I've never been more sure of the path that I've chosen. And so this is the, you know, the writer kind of commenting on this. 
The writer says, Grant's decision to leave and her decision to post on Facebook about it were probably well-intentioned, but that doesn't mean they were wise. In fact, maybe it wasn't just her many thoughts about the evening that were better left inside her head. Maybe she should have also left inside her head the very fact that she had those thoughts. Grant's post opened the door for conservative media outlets to denounce the night and affirm her bravery. Her post opened the door for liberal media outlets once again to decry the judgmentalism of Christians. It opened the door for a lot of hate and name-calling to rush in. Despite her best intentions, I fear that Grant's post comes across as holier than thou. As my friend Laura Turner tweeted, it reminded me of Christian friends who asked others not to cuss around them in high school. I can't help but wonder if a more appropriate response would have been to leave without saying a word. After all, didn't Jesus tell us to do our praying in private? And when we do good works, not even to let the right hand know what the left hand is doing? I can't help but wonder if a more appropriate response would have even have been to stay. Christians are not so holy that we can't bear to be around offensive behavior, and we shouldn't expect a secular event to conform to our standards of morality. Jesus was holiness incarnate, and he happily rubbed shoulders with the most despised sinners of his day. Maybe the most loving thing to do would have been to stay, to look for redemptive possibilities, or to make personal connections with the beloved, made in the image of God humans in the audience and on the stage. Just an interesting perspective on, on how to engage culture. And <clears throat> the, the author wasn't really condemning uh, Natalie Grant, but just using it as an example of here's how sometimes Christians engage, and with, maybe with good intentions, but, but how easily it opens a door for it to be used in some different ways that might not really achieve what it is you were hoping it might achieve. So um, with that, I'm just going to close and let you wrestle with whatever you want to do with that. So <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time today. Lord, as we look at the ways in which sometimes we uh, engage this temporary home that we have as exiles here uh, in this world, this town of St. Joe, and we see the way in which many Christians engage culture, including us at times, in ways that, that don't really build a bridge of conversation, that really lead people towards Christ, but a lot of times just pushes them away, puts up walls, just feeds the stereotypes of, I knew that's what they were like, and I knew that church was going to be that way, and that that person was going to respond that way. And God, more than anything, we see how you encountered people who obviously living in sin, but how you had a way of connecting and engaging with them that we need to learn how to be better at. That we need to understand that beneath the sinful actions of this world of which we're a part and of which we contribute to is a desire in all of us, whether we're in church this morning or not in church, to connect with something greater. To understand our true purpose, our true calling. uh, To be known that we're loved by God who gave his life for us. And sometimes our actions and our attitudes and our behavior just get in the way of that truth. (laughs) in ways that just cloud people's perspectives and, and just muddy the waters of, of your truth, God, getting through in a clear way. So God, help us to be better at that. Help us to have your heart. Help us to, when we read your word and see how you operated, to, to do that too, <laughs> to, to mimic and imitate the way in which you connected with those far from you. And God, help, help us look at ourselves As we've talked about a couple times this morning here, God, we all are just fallen short people. (laughs) 
people who need to, to, to know that we are broken and messed up too and just as much in need of your grace as any other person that's out there in the world today. So God, just kill the arrogance and the pride in us at times that wants us to think that we're right and we're holy and these other people are so messed up and blah, 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 God, that, that we are just all in the same boat, desperately in need of your grace. And that for whatever reason in your timing, you've chosen to maybe reveal some things to us or give us some opportunities that some other people just haven't had yet. But God, break our hearts for those that are far from you. Help us not to be in a place where we just condemn them, but, but God, that our hearts would just cry out that they would know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.